SCP-001, Mamjul and Karar, Part 1. It's a fairly common theme among the SCP universe that some things are just better off buried and forgotten. This holds true for much of horror fiction, of course, but the SCP universe has a particular way of reawakening things with far greater consequences than merely a group of wayward teenagers being killed off. The previous SCP-001 in this series, Amani Ram, certainly demonstrated that clearly enough, bringing the ancient Mechanite Empire into the modern day and causing quite a stir in the Foundation. It revealed greater detail about the ancient wars between the Mechanites, the Davites, and the Sarkites, but so far the Foundation has far more questions than answers, and after what happened in Amani Ram, they're not exactly thrilled to find out more. Let's take a look. Let's first begin with a little primer on what exactly happened in Amani Ram. I would of course recommend either reading that article yourself or viewing my previous video on it, but I'll cover the broad details. The Foundation discovered a hidden, ancient city in the southern Arabian desert, determining it to be Amani Ram, the fortress city of the Mechanite Empire. Two researchers were chosen to head up the investigation, Dr. Robert Aram and Dr. Hedvig Nussbaum. The technology still present in the city proved to be incredible, notably a mechanical throne that allows an individual to experience vivid memories from the past rulers of the city, all named Bumaro. Over time, Aram became increasingly disconnected from the Foundation, diving deeper and deeper into the memories of the past until he eventually takes on the mantle of Bumaro himself. He declares Amani Ram to be his, and states that the Church of the Broken God will change the world in order to be protected from the Abominate, a mysterious fourth entity or group from ancient times that still seems to be around in the modern day. The rest of Aram's team, including Nussbaum, also betrayed the Foundation, although not necessarily of their own free will. Before we get into the SCP proper, we're given a few verses from a historical account, which is noted to have been introduced into this file at a later date, under containment protocol Herodotus, named after the Greek historian, said to be the father of history. The verses read, As witnessed by Var Silmitabaya, first Rajmata of the Scarlet Maharaja. In the first age, when the great gods clashed in the sky and split the heavens in their four-prong war, the material plane bore witness to the first, the greatest war of the cosmos. Their dance was one of fury and hatred and destruction, and in the place of stars they twirled and shook and gyrated, bringing down the wrath to the song of creation itself. The metal the flesh, the scarlet, and the wretch wrestled in the maw of eternity and moved like streams with the force of floods and broke. And when it was over, 
when the divine fluid had been spilt onto the wet soil, the quarter came crashing down to the material plane, broken and torn, landing in the far corners and crevices of the one land, there to lay for ages and ages past before an eye was laying upon them. The scarlet lay, and in the millennia life sprung up in the material plane, from lichen to fish to trees, and then finally man arose in the far east, south, and west on the backs of their new gods. But the scarlet had already created life, unbeknownst to its brother and sisters. As the gods slumbered in their ersatz tombs, the scarlet reached out with the gift of life, striking a seed on the astral plane that sprouted, growing wildly and with abandon, unobserved and unlimited, existing only in the gaps and roots and vines of the jungle. Uncountable cycles before man took his first steps on Asia, the spirits, the deva, expanded from a single thought of a dreaming god to a people, a culture, and a civilization on the unobserved astral plane as they danced and hunted and killed and warred and mated around the great tree of life in worship to the scarlet. And the god, the scarlet, pinned underneath the ever-growing weight of the jungle as the men moved in and built their huts and their farms and killed and died, yet more victims of the brutal circle of life, reached up and dug its fingers in, plucking its eye from its socket and pushing it up just as the first man sought refuge under a tree. The gem, swaddled in the same roots, sprung from the mouth of the beast, sung out for a champion, for a warrior who would raise his sword in the name of the first, truest magic, and march forth under the banner of the first, truest of the four gods, to strike a bargain with the deva, children of the Scarlet House, and become their Chakravarti. Whereas the Amani Ram proposal took a close look at the Mechanite Empire, this time we'll be looking more closely at the Davites, with these verses explaining that they first arose in the astral plane, created by an ancient entity known as the Scarlet, after a great cosmic war. As mankind began to spread across the earth, on top of the tombs of the ancient gods, the Scarlet plucked one of its eyes out and offered it to a human champion, who would strike a bargain with the Deva and become their Chakravarti, their Emperor of Emperors. With that, we move on to the actual SCP itself, the ruins of Mamjul, an ancient pre-First Occult War city-state located approximately 734 kilometers off the southern tip of the Indian subcontinent. Evidence seems to suggest that Mamjul was constructed and located at or above sea level, so how it came to rest 3.6 kilometers underwater is unknown. It was first discovered by the Foundation on August 24th, 2002, and originally believed to be a mundane archaeological ruin. Its location was recorded to disseminate to the global archaeological community in the near future, 
but closer inspection revealed the city's remarkable preservation, despite having spent well over three millennia underwater. Further investigation by divers unearthed the full extent of the city, which was initially thought to be the ruins of a small Bronze Age settlement, but was revealed to contain several hundred buildings, most of them buried under large amounts of silt and sand. In addition, divers found considerable evidence that Mamjul was the seat of a Bronze Age advanced human civilization that made extensive use of thaumaturgy and biomancy, known to the Foundation as the Davic Covenant. Additional personnel were then dispatched to confirm that this was the Davic city of Mamjul, as mentioned in the Aegean tablets and corroborated by noted explorer and naturalist Lord Blackwood, as well as evidence from Amani Ram. We're next provided a historical briefing on Mamjul, including relevant passages from the Aegean tablets, which were located previously by the Foundation thanks to Lord Blackwood. Mamjul has some historical analog in mundane history and culture, although not to the same extent as Amani Ram did. The most explicit example is that of Kumari Kandam, also known as Lemuria. Lemuria was a hypothetical sunken continent first proposed in the 19th century as an explanation for the presence of lemur fossils in both Madagascar and India, but not in any land masses separating the two. This theory predated that of continental drift and plate tectonics theory. Lemuria was quickly co-opted, however, by a large movement of Tamil revivalists in India as a potential birthplace of human civilization, altering the idea to fit with cultural legends of an ancient Bronze Age Tamil civilization, one that would eventually form the basis for Indian civilization before being suddenly and violently swallowed by the sea. Of course, the Lemuria hypothesis was eventually rendered obsolete by plate tectonics theory, and no mundane records exist to support its existence. In the occult community, however, Kumari Kandam had been the subject of considerable debate, long after the Lemuria hypothesis was discarded by mundane science. Several expeditions, funded by various anomalous organizations, ventured into the Indian Ocean throughout the 20th century in an attempt to find evidence of the sunken continent, with only one having any results. An explorer known by the alias of Captain Nemo claims to have discovered Atlantean ruins in the region during a 1925 self-funded expedition, but his records were never released and disappeared along with him in 1939. As for the six Aegean tablets, they contained the first discovered mentions of Bronze Age advanced human civilizations, and were originally recovered from the Sea of Crete by agents of the French government prior to the revolution. As mentioned, they were eventually claimed by the Foundation, but there's been great difficulty in translating all of them. The segment of the first tablet that mentions Mamjul reads, Mamjul and Karar, two dark fortresses resting in the jungles of the subcontinent. The magicians and sorcerer nawabs allied themselves against the horrors of the jungle, 
and crossed a pact with something ancient. The covenant of the Deva was born, using the first magic gifted to man, the magic of life and death. By 1999, the second and fourth tablets have been fully translated, with the fourth describing the Mechanite Empire and Amani Ram, while the second covers Mamjul, Karar, and the forerunner civilization of the Davic Covenant. It reads, Root, blood, steel. Once, men huddled for warmth and dryness under the broad leaves of the jungle titans. Once, fire was a weak dream, drowned under the weight of endless flood and rain. Once, the land was blanketed so densely with untamed forest that the spirits of the trees themselves walked past the coast and into the sea. Once, man was weak and frail, battered from the constant war to survive with the jungle. Once, a man curled into the base of a tree, sheltering from a torrent. His fingers discovered a scarlet jewel jammed between the knotted roots. It shone into his eyes with depth like an ocean of blood. He pulled it from its nest and put it to his ear. The endless scarlet sang to him. It offered a deal. Should he lay down his own mind and soul in service to the spirits, they would gift him their boons. He would ascend to the realm of the gods, and in return they would assure not just his people's survival, but their power. His children and his children's children would be sorcerers. The boons of the Deva would be at their fingertips, and he would be a once and future king. The covenant was struck. The Deva themselves descended from the realm of the spirits and the gods. They met the people and bonded with them. Every body contains two spirits and the power to bend the forest to their will. The first magic was used to raise the city in the depths of the jungle. The people toiled for a year and one day laying the massive stones and bracing the walls with vine and root, crafting the city that would be the seat of an empire. Mamjul was built under the watchful slumber of the Scarlet and its prophet. And once the Davic cities were assured, and the record was writ, the Covenant marched north under the banner of the Scarlet Maharaja. The word Deva originally refers to supernatural entities and spirits, almost all of which are malevolent, within the canon of Zoroastrianism, a monotheistic faith predicated on good ultimately triumphing over evil. Variations on the term Deva appear throughout several different Asian religions and mythologies, suggesting the Deva mentioned in the tablets are a common source. This is supported by the tablet's claims that the Davic Covenant spread their culture and beliefs throughout Asia. Following the incident with Amani Ram, 
locating both Mamjul and Karar was elevated to global priority level alpha in order to gain a material advantage over the Church of the Broken God. Various documents, murals, and scrolls recovered from Amaniram indicated that the cities were located somewhere on the Indian subcontinent, although the loss of almost all personnel and original records from the Amaniram initiative made more specific details unobtainable. Initial search efforts concentrated near established archaeological sites and in India's dense tropical forests resulted in no findings. We're then given a transcript from August of 2002, when the Foundation divers first found the ruins of Mamjul. The two divers, Khan 1 and Khan 2 of MTF Gamma 6, Deep Feeders, were being guided by senior researcher Pandora Galanis of the Foundation's Parahistory Division. They're located in the Lakadive Sea, about 300 kilometers off the coast of Sri Lanka, and they're investigating some underwater structures that a satellite array has picked up, although they don't expect to find anything other than piles of trash or weird rocks. The divers are equipped with coyote suits allowing them to descend down to 5,000 meters with a self-sustaining oxygen supply. The two begin their descent, which will take them about half an hour, and they joke about what kind of weird rock they're going to find this time, while commenting about how they could be on worse dead-end assignments than this. Galanis tries to argue that this isn't a dead-end assignment, as it's global priority level alpha, but Khan 1 remarks that it's been 20 years since all that crap in Saudi Arabia, and finding a way to kill SCP-682 is also a global priority level alpha, even though there hasn't been any progress on that. Galanis says that they may not stumble onto the key to the world here, but they never know what might point them in the right direction. The Foundation wouldn't have ever even gotten involved without the Aegean Tablets, and those got pulled out of a shipwreck in Greece. As they finish their descent, they activate their floodlights, seeing a massive, angled stone structure nearby. They begin to swim around the massive structure, which is a tapering cylinder with staggered, massive stone slopes, culminating in a flat, central plain. It almost appears to be a pillar, but they can't tell how tall it is as they can't see the seabed, and it looks like there's a lot more buildings below them. Khan 2 activates a sonar topological mapper to give them a better idea of what they're looking at, with Galanis remarking that the structures remind them a little of Orkney architecture, so it's possible that they've stumbled onto some kind of colony. Khan 2 approaches the structure to brush aside a curtain of kelp and seaweed that's built up, discovering a large mural carved into it. It depicts figures dancing, fighting, eating, and copulating under a massive tree within a jungle. The scene continues well past the visible sides, and it appears that most of the structure's surface is covered in intricately carved murals. There's also a series of large glyphs, which they take some photographs of for Galanis to run against the Foundation's database. 
Galanis pauses as they do so, remarking that the glyphs seem familiar for some reason, which Khan too takes as a good sign, in that this is probably just another one of the ancient cultures that they've seen before. Khan too then reaches out and grabs a jagged outcropping, bracing her feet against the wall and pulling on it. It eventually cracks and gives way, and she holds up the broken piece, the exterior of which is a different color from the interior. It turns out that the structure is made of wood, which must be petrified and turned to stone. They don't see any planks or nails across the structure though, meaning that it's just one massive piece of wood. Galanis then remarks that the shape makes sense now, as it's not a tower, but a stump. The tree would have had to have been at least a kilometer tall, or probably more, so it's definitely anomalous. They continue to look over it, finding some gaps, but they look more like decorative arches than any entrance. The preliminary reading from their sonar device shows that the whole stump is hollow, and very big, so they keep looking. On top of the stump, they find that the edge of it is raised slightly into a form of wall, and there are various sets of steps and short walls across the surface, all seeming to be naturally emerging from the wood. There's no seams or cracks anywhere, but Khan too finds a large, flat, circular covering in the center of the surface, with a small gap. They move to lift it, and to their surprise, it's much lighter than its appearance would suggest. Khan too says that the piece she broke off from the side was heavier than this covering is. The interior is dark, but definitely hollow, so Khan 1 floats down, confirming that this is in fact a building. He can see walls, a big spiral staircase looping up, probably to the roof although the top of it is cracked off and it's lying on the floor now. Meanwhile, the scan of the glyphs on the side has finally completed, and a match has been found. Galanis checks it, and then tells both of the divers to hold their positions. A minute later, Galanis then tells them to start ascending back to the surface. As he ascends out of the stump, Khan 1 suddenly spasms and swears, saying that it sounded like someone was whispering. Galanis tells them to get out of there now, so they begin rapidly ascending, without Galanis elaborating on what the glyphs said. A short while later, they reach the surface and climb aboard the ship, although the deck is empty. They remove their suits and head up to the command deck, where they find several researchers huddled around a monitor, along with Galanis. Galanis explains that the computer didn't just find a glyph match, it found an exact visual match. A single scan from 23 years ago, from one of the murals in a money rom. It had the same exact string of glyphs on it, determined to be a sample of the Davite language. It reads, Mamjul Ishivata, House of the Scarlet, Seat of the Deva. They found it. Following this, a findings report was urgently transmitted to Site 07, and the ship was ordered to hold position 
and to let no personnel leave. A special session of the O5 Council was called, consisting of eight of the members communicating remotely with Glanis. O5-1 introduces himself as Django Bridge, and mentions that a few of the council members were not able to make it on such short notice, even with the lay space communicators they use. Galanis says that some of them should have received preliminary word on what they found, but O5-2 remarks that he gets about 400 briefing packets every morning, so they'll need an explanation. Galanis says that they found Mamjul and Karar, causing the council to burst into chatter until O5-1 orders them to stop and let Galanis explain. Galanis thanks him and says that two days ago, the Foundation research ship Lilyhammer was conducting routine diving operations on potential sites of interest in the Lacadive Sea, investigating a site with a potential anomaly detected by the Atreus satellite array. Two divers were sent down and encountered the ruins of a large city centered around an immense calcified tree stump carved out into what they think is some sort of citadel. Galanis pulled them out as soon as a match on the glyphs was found, but the divers did see structures far below them, with the rest of the city being at least the size of a money rom, possibly larger. After a brief pause, the council begins discussing this, stating that it's extremely troubling and could be worse than a money rom. O510 suggests getting rid of it with an underwater tactical nuke, to which the others vehemently disagree, with O57 saying that they've just been served an advantage on a silver platter. The playing field in 1987 was not the same as it is now, and they now have a material incentive to intervening. They are at a disadvantage against Bumaro, waiting for him to strike. The Deva dealt a lethal blow to a money rom, so it is worth at the very least investigating their methods. O510 says that they haven't heard anything from the Mechanites in a decade, so perhaps they wiped themselves out, while O52 says that they should wait for the administrator, although none of them even know if he's alive. Interrupting, Galanis calls for attention and says that the maps in a money rom pointed them to India but no one expected it to be in the sea. Project Triad's efforts have been focused into mainland India, and Galanis can't speak as to what happened in 1987, but this isn't the same organization as it was then. They don't allow cybernetics anymore, and they've changed to avoid those mistakes. Ultimately though, they're not the only ones who know about it as they've been working off what they managed to get out of a money rom before everything happened, while Bumaro has had access to the city for a decade since. Imagine what he's unlocked since then, and what he could do if he takes Mamjul and Karar. As far as they know, the David Covenant are half the reason the Mechanites fell, so they need their deterrent. O510 says that it's not a bad argument, but they're going to need more concrete assurances than happy feelings and declarations of trust. O51 says that they'll continue this discussion in private, and thanks Galanis, telling them to hold their position 
and maintain the lockdown. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Two days later, an 05 edict was released, accounting for the creation of the Mamjul slash Karar initiative, albeit with several restrictions and assurances to prevent unforeseen incidents. Detachments from MTF Alpha 1 and Delta 1 are to be attached to the initiative to monitor progress and report directly to the Council on any developments. Project lead Pandora Galanis is to be routinely tested by operators for mimetic or cognitohazardous influence. All personnel are to have cognitohazard resistance values of at least 14.9, and active anomalous objects are only to receive cursory examination on site, with extended research conducted elsewhere. Finally, FMS Phantom has been diverted from its assignment in the Southern Ocean and is en route to provide support, supply, and personnel to the FRS Lilyhammer. Galanis has been informed of and agreed to these restrictions, and O5 Command will take a significant position in administrative decisions for the initiative. Due to heading up the discovery of Mamjul, as well as their prior experience with anomalous civilizations, Galanis was selected as the project lead with the recommendation of 051. We're given a quick dossier on Galanis, age 44, who was recruited by the Foundation straight out of university with a PhD in anthropology. They were assigned to the Amani Ram initiative at its beginning in 1983, but transferred out of the location after only three months due to health reasons. They continued on the project, however handling and analyzing recovered mechanite technology and artifacts. They were eventually reassigned to a series of low-priority para-history research projects, and was denied promotion six different times due to internal security directive Candy Shop, which limited the handful of personnel that had been working outside of a money ROM in case of lasting cognitohazardous influence. We're also given a quick brief on the FMS Phantom, indicating that it's crewed by 470 humans and a significant complement of AIs. It was originally purchased from the Republic of China in 1992, but was extensively retrofitted by the Foundation as a prototype for Olympia systems, and is equipped with a signal warfare suite, traditional arms and ammo, multiple laboratories, and aircraft. The Phantom arrived at the Lilyhammer's location on September 2nd, and created a long-term connection between the two ships. Galanis meets with Captain Hickman of the Phantom, along with A.J. Desai, the lead diver on the Lilyhammer. Hickman remarks on how sudden this all feels, as he's used to having orders months in advance, but says that this is far more exciting than his prior position in Antarctica. 
Galanis agrees, mentioning how two weeks ago they were assuring the rest of the team that they'd find something eventually, and now they're sitting in on council meetings and leading this massive project. Another man then enters, and Hickman introduces him as Lieutenant Lucian Greaves, head of the security detail for the project, a member of MTF Alpha-1. Desai immediately refers to them as their babysitters, to which Greaves says that he understands that Foundation naval teams are used to a certain level of independence, this far from civilization. They all know, however, that this project wouldn't have been approved without certain assurances, such as the presence of Alpha-1. Amani Ram is still a fresh wound, and he's been tasked with making sure it isn't reopened. He hopes to make this as painless as possible for everyone though, and they'll try not to disturb the research work beyond what's needed. Galanis thanks him for that, but he continues, mentioning that he's going to need their cooperation for that, and hopes they don't have any qualms with them checking in on the work every so often. Galanis understands, and Greaves leaves, with Desai immediately complaining about Alpha-1's presence. He's in an MTF as well, but he says that agents like him are normal people for the most part, while those guys are ex-military and CIA types, the type that shoot first and waterboard later. He doesn't trust them, and Hickman says that there's probably not a man in the Foundation who wouldn't be at least a little jittery when the red right hand is looking over their shoulder. Desai asks how they got that name exactly, to which Galanis says that it's from Paradise Lost by John Milton, quoting, What if the breath that kindled those grim fires, awaked should blow them into sevenfold rage, and plunge us into flames, or from above, should intermitted vengeance arm again, his red right hand to plague us. Galanis says that they can't blame them for being suspicious, as even though they told the council that they've moved past what Nussbaum and Aram did, it's not an unreasonable suspicion. Galanis is okay with a little scrutiny on their work if it means they get to study the David Covenant. Hickman says that that mindset is respectable, and he doesn't intend to interfere either. If they have any problems, they can come to him and he'll sort them out but beyond that, he technically answers to Galanis for the duration of the project. He does say, however, that this is a huge project, as it's an entire city to uncover, and Galanis agrees, saying that there's no time to lose. They'll start descending tomorrow. Before we get into that, though, we're given another set of verses from a Davic historical text. The verses read, as witnessed by Sodibirat, second Rajmata of the Scarlet Maharaja. The covenant was struck, and the king of the Scarlet House of the Deva took his wife and his throne, and slept and dreamt a dream of a grand, great city of stone and spire, spanning vast farmlands and jungles the seat of an empire that would truly please the Scarlet. At their emperor's behest, 
and now able to take form on the material plane. The Deva of the Scarlet rode down from the trees on their six-winged, thousand-legged beasts of burden, and joined in celebrations with the tribe of their new suzerain, in hymnal and orgiastic worship to the great red power. Then the Deva, with their many arms, grasped the stones and built a fortress to protect themselves, for now the Deva and the men were one in the eyes of the trees. They worked tirelessly and without cease for three nights and three days, while Mamjul, city for men, rose from the earth around the great tree of life. Then they climbed the trunk and branches of the tree, scaling it up to the heavens and back into the astral plane, whereupon they again began to work, constructing another city of star stuff and soul spirits given up to the cosmos after death. The leaves and fruits and flowers of the great tree formed the canopy for this Karar, city for Deva, great beacon through the empty wandering wastes of the heavens, a perfect mirror of its sister below, with the scarlet Maharaja resting in his dream, sustaining the empire in the grand temple of the tree. The magic of the Deva was now man's to command, and the battle mages and sorcerer nawabs marched out under their scarlet banner to conquer fertile lands and the godless cities in the name of their king, assisted by the spirits, lengths tall, and able to tear a man in two with only a strike. The red wave swept across Asia from the south, demolishing all in its path, consuming the spirit of the enemy, taking prisoner, slave, and loot back to Mamjul on the back of the great beasts of the Covenant. Cities would lay down arms and accept the Scarlet Maharaja as their Chakravarti, as his beasts and creatures brought down their walls, and the magicians would lay waste to their palaces and temples. The Scarlet Maharaja's bride, the Rajmata, would sit and rule in his stead, matriarch of the covenant as he slept in the branches of the great tree. Long-lived and beautiful and awesome, the lineage of queens would defend the city against all threats, and the city swelled with treasures and fine linens and foodstuffs across the vast Davic covenant, and the poets and artists and dancers and people of thought filled its buildings with the culture of the covenant, and when they died, their spirits would dance the dance of the cosmos, rising up the tree into Karar to live the eternal song of the Deva. And the Deva would reside in their kingdom above, watching over the men they loved so. And it was in this way that Mamjul became known as Mamjul, Jewel of the South, and Karar became the great tree kingdom of the cosmos. The first of several dives into the ruins of the city took place on September 6th, 2002. The submersible aboard the Lilyhammer was outfitted with grab arms, spotlights, and a holding bay before being deployed. 
and was capable of both manned piloting by two to three crew members or partial unmanned piloting by a primitive AI. For the first dive, they opted for the AI, with Desai in command and Galanis and Greaves observing. After being dropped into the water, the submersible continues to descend for 22 minutes, to a depth of 3.6 kilometers. Eventually, the stump comes into view, and thanks to the additional light from the submersible, it becomes apparent that the section that the divers explored was only a small part of the megastructure. The whole structure is nearly 400 meters in height, with a top circumference of 70 meters. From a distance, it's clear that the structure is reminiscent of a stump, although the base is too far to be seen. The submersible approaches closer to the exterior of the structure, showing the entire surface covered in extensive carvings and reliefs depicting a variety of scenes and figures, including a depiction of the tree itself, which also recursively contains reliefs of the tree and scenes. The submersible continues to revolve around the stump, taking pictures, and it's noted that the carvings of the figures and animals are remarkably realistic for being carved from wood. Many figures are clearly human, but many also display distinctly non-human qualities, ranging from horns to animal snouts and limbs. Two figures recur frequently, and are depicted as nearly three or four times the height of the rest. One is a long-bearded man with an elaborate headdress, shown carrying long spears across his back and typically with eyes closed. The other is a gigantic androgynous entity with an obscured face, inset with gleaming red gemstones. They are almost always depicted together. At Galanis's command, the submersible uses a laser torch to cut off a small cube of the tree material and store it. It then travels to the top of the stump, finding the entrance hole revealed by the divers. It's spacious enough to fit through, so it descends inside, revealing the interior to be intricately constructed, featuring landings, corridors, and doorways, presumably leading off to smaller rooms. The interior walls also contain carvings, but a smaller amount, and the rubble of a spiral staircase can be seen far below through holes in various floors. Shortly after, Desai complains of someone whispering in the command room, and Greaves says that he hears it as well, but no other members in the command room are speaking or report hearing any speaking. Galanis notes the anomaly as Greaves orders a routine cognitohazard evaluation for himself and Desai, but the mission proceeds. The submersible arrives at the base of the stump, which is too small for it to safely maneuver through. The high ceilings are inlaid with a winding root and vine pattern, and the far end of the room contains some kind of pedestal with a long object on it, but the visibility is poor. Beside it appears to be some kind of wooden throne. The submersible turns in the opposite direction, and finds an exit to the structure, exiting out into the center of a large, wide avenue, 
lined on all sides by large stone-cut buildings and fortifications. The architecture of the buildings is heavily reminiscent of ancient South Asian architecture, with stacked terraced roofs and battlements of heavy stone. The street forks ahead, spreading out, and from where it's located the submersible can see an entire section of Mamjul collapsed under the weight of the ocean. It begins to drift through the streets of the city, slowly mapping the area. The avenues are wide and broad, and the doorways and buildings throughout the city are strangely disproportionate to the average human body. The architecture remains similar, with towering shrines of stone and buildings with terraced temple roofs, but the farther away from the tree stump, the less intact the buildings are. Many show signs of extreme disrepair and stress, particularly around the outer edges of the city's walls where they are practically piles of rubble. The submersible eventually ascends and deploys a sonar mapper to formulate a 3D map of the city. From this height, it's clear that the city is contained within three triangular walls forming high ramparts, similar to Amani Ram's circular Great Wall although Mamjul is significantly larger in area. The submersible then returns to the base of the city, with operators pointing out sites of stress and battle. While a large amount of buildings appear crushed by the intense pressure, there are scorch marks, explosion craters, and bleached skeletons littering the streets of large portions of the city. The amount of skeletons is particularly notable with certain sections of the city literally layered in dead bodies, many of which suggest a non-human skeleton structure. Samples of some of the bones are taken. The submersible then passes a large building that appears relatively intact, with an entrance large enough to maneuver through. Desai assumes manual control and pilots it through, finding the interior to be filled with toppled shelves and scattered skeletal remains. One corner of the building, however, contains a cache of ceramic chests and jars that appear to be water-sealed. A number of these smaller jars are recovered, but Galanis orders the larger ones to be left behind until divers can grab them. The submersible leaves the structure and continues to explore the outer edges of the city, confirming its triangular shape, until it runs low on power and returns to the surface. Following its return and the analysis of onboard data, anomalies were detected in the audio recorded by the submersible's microphone. The audio tracks were isolated and amplified, revealing a low-frequency buzzing of unknown origin from when the submersible departed the stump to when it left the city entirely. Greaves and Desai both submitted to evaluations afterwards, and passed with adequate scores. The samples recovered from the dive were analyzed on site in the clean labs aboard the Phantom before being transported off-site for long-term study and, if necessary, containment. The piece of the stump recovered confirmed that the substance comprising the structure is organic, similar in appearance to teak wood 
but heavily hardened and mineralized through a process resembling fossilization. The final product is a dark, knotted wood that is incredibly dense and hard, comparable to stone, while being entirely organically grown. The jars recovered were sealed and made watertight through application of a thick, gum-like substance. Upon removal and opening the jars, stone and clay tablets were discovered inside, although they were all completely featureless, lacking any kind of writing or marking. Their significance is as of yet unknown. The digital images recorded of the various carvings on the citadel and throughout the city were disseminated for analysis among the research team. On September 12th, the various research sectors comprising the team had the first of several leadership meetings. Galanis begins the meeting by welcoming everyone, saying that about a third of them are from Galanis's research team, while the rest have been flown out for this project. Galanis also introduces the second-in-command, Desai, and has everyone introduce themselves as they speak. Sheridan, head of archaeology, and Yijun, head of the linguistic analysis team, introduce themselves, with Yijun asking if they're in danger, pointing out Greaves and the MTF in the corner of the room. Galanis explains that they are here just as observers, and Greaves says that they should pretend he's not even here. Galanis continues after a pause, saying that since the submersible dive, they've confirmed that they're not getting any expressly anomalous readings from the city itself or any of the recovered material. The samples recovered are definitely odd and of significant interest to the project, but Hume levels are normal, evaluations after the dive were normal, and pretty much all readings are normal. Aberer, head of anthropology, interjects to say that they've barely explored the city so far, and Galanis agrees, saying that the submersible wasn't able to get into any of the nooks and crannies, but the O5 Council and Greaves have authorized human exploration of the city. A small cheer rings out, but Ramaswamy of the para-history team says that while that's amazing, how are they sure it's safe? Galanis says that there's no reason to think that there's anything spooky down there, but they'd like everyone to be cautious regardless. Even without anything anomalous, exploring those old degraded ruins can be dangerous at the best of times. As Galanis is about to mention what happened to Dr. Nussbaum, Greaves cuts in, saying that there's nothing expressly anomalous here, but it would do everyone well to be cautious. Galanis continues, wanting to go over their current pool of knowledge on the Davic Covenant to get everyone on the same page. Prior to discovering Mamjul, all of their knowledge on the Davic Covenant came from either the Aegean Tablets or records recovered from the Amani Ram initiative. The image they give is of some kind of caste-based proto-Tamil Indian civilization, one that made exceptionally heavy use of life magic. The ancient Mechanites wrote far less about the Davic Covenant than they did about the Nalka, or the Sarkites, but the Foundation has determined that they were hostile to one another. Mechanite dogma was transhumanist, 
and the way they spoke of and referenced the Covenant suggests their religion and magic, which seemed to be more concerned with the spirit and soul, conflicted easily. Ramaswamy says that while this is certainly true, he'd like to remind everyone that they are unfortunately limited in scope by the nature and context of their sources. As mentioned, the Davic Covenant, the Mechanite Empire, and the Nalka peoples were at war with one another almost as soon as they became aware of one another when colonizing Central Asia. It's possible, and even likely, that much of the writings from this period were more intended as religious propaganda than historical record. Galanis agrees, which brings up the Aegean tablets, and takes it over to Sheridan from archaeology. Sheridan says that the section of the tablets they've translated so far, the one describing the Covenant, shares some broad strokes with the Mechanite portrayal. A precursor to Tamil Indian empires in the same way the Mechanites would later influence pre-Islamic Arabian empires. They go into detail about the magic of life referenced in the first tablet, and right now they're inclined to think it's some kind of thaumaturgy focusing on living tissue, particularly plant matter. To sum their origin up, the first human tribes in India apparently were farther south, during a recession of the Indian Ocean. The leader of one of those tribes made some kind of deal with a spirit, a deva, to ally their societies into one, making the Davic Covenant. This is quite similar to the Mechanite myth of their origin, with a god offering boons to a human society in exchange for service and worship, and both civilizations seem to agree that these gods were somehow related. From there, it's a bit murkier, with it describing the construction of Mamjul, but no idea what Karar even is, if anything. It breaks from the Mechanite dogma, referencing four gods at the start instead of three, including something called the Wretch. Sheridan says that he doesn't even know what the Deva exactly are, how they managed to bring down a money Ram or how they relate to the Abominate. Galanis says that there's a lot more questions than answers, and was hoping that the city would clarify some of them, but so far all they've found are blank tablets and bones. Something bad happened here, but they don't know what. Desai then cuts in, saying that he's no scientist, but it seems like they are kind of missing the forest for the trees. After hesitating for a moment, he asks, What kind of power does it take to sink an entire continent? A silence washes over the room, until Galanis says that it's their job to find out, and dismisses the group. You know, as well as I know, that the sunken city is not free of anomalies so only time will tell what mysteries lurk in those ancient buildings. The research team is largely optimistic, excited at all of the potential that a lost city might hold, but the whispers that some of them are hearing are certainly ominous enough. The O5 Council wants to desperately avoid a repeat of what happened in a money rom, but while they may be able to avoid making the same mistakes as before, they might just go ahead and make some new ones. 
We'll find out more about Mom Jewel and Karar in the second part.